at all. Morning, Dad. Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History podcast. This series is called Fairs Please, an oral history of London's bus workers. London Primary School children interviewed 26 of London's bus workers to document what life was like for conductors, drivers, engineers and inspectors on the buses. My life began the day I started working on the buses. We were taught by craftsmen, real proper craftsmen that went back to the year dot. Nice sunny days when there's not many people about and it's nice and casual and you're running on time and the sun's coming through and you've got your arm leaning on the the window and the sun coming through. It was lovely. Episode one explores the reasons people came to work on the buses, their recruitment and training, and the work of the bus conductor. Uh, my dad was, uh, he was a mechanic at what was then the AEC works at Southall. In fact, they built buses. So if you like, it's sort of in the blood. My father was a master mechanic and worked on the buses. And my mother worked on the buses as a clippy. When I was about eight years old, my father took charge of me. He had to do something with me on a Sunday morning. And he liked to go down the pub. He didn't really want to look after the little boy. And he put me on a bus and gave the conductor on the bus 10 shillings to look after me. So I did a trip to Allgate and then back to Labrick Grove. But I loved it. And that, that was what started my interest in buses. Really, as a child, buying, as I used to do, a Rover ticket. In those days, it was called a Red Rover, which for a child, I think, was three shillings in the old currency. And it gave you the complete freedom to explore London's bus routes. I was driving lorries beforehand, and it was away a lot of the night. And I decided that if I was to drive a bus, I could go home every night. I was, uh, couldn't wait to get on the buses, but the minimum age to go on the buses was 18. So I had to make do with an office job. It was in Euston Road, which isn't far from here. But in the summer, I used to look down in the street, see all the conductors uh, hanging off the platform on the bus. I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. But I couldn't because I was still only 16. But on my 18th birthday, I went along to what is called Griffith House on the old Marylebone Road and signed up the best day of my life, probably. Because I love driving. Because before I was a bus driver, I was also a driving instructor. It was a childhood ambition to drive a bus, just so I wanted to try it out. I didn't mean to do it as a living. I came down to London uh, to live and uh, I wanted a job fairly quickly. And uh, because I'd worked in buses in Glasgow, uh, I decided to go and see if I could get a bus, uh, a bus conductor's job in London, and uh, I did. You had to be able to drive a car, but you could then be trained, uh, as a, first of all as a conductor and then as a driver. And the money, was, the money that you were paid was 
comparable with skilled workers in the engineering industry? My life began the day I started working on the buses because in Barbados, I finished high school and couldn't find a job for four years. And that's one of the main reasons that I decided to come here in the coal, instead of leaving a nice hot country, come here in the coal to work. Um, I always wanted to be a mechanic. And unlike some of the drivers you have interviewed with their driving uniforms on, this is my uniform. Engineering, screwdriver on this side, the bits and pieces. I've always been engineering mad all my life. Uh, my mother was a snob and thought that I shouldn't do it. Uh, my father was pleased that I got work. <laughs> Bright young people were needed to keep London moving in the future. The trainee was coming from different parts of the UK. Liverpool, uh, Yorkshire, um, lots of trouble in the mines, so you were getting miners coming up for jobs to London. People from all over the UK was coming. Over there, with over time, I was earning £14 a week, you know, in Glasgow. Here, the basic was £16. And uh, two bits of overtime, I got £20 a week. Well, early in the 1950s, after the war, uh, there were a lot of problems trying to recruit staff. So London Transport actually went to, over to Barbados in the West Indies and they did interviews over there and anyone that was willing to come to London, they actually paid their fare and arranged for accommodation for them. When I first came to, to London, it looked gloomy and kind of cold. I wish, I, to myself, I, I said, if I had the money, I would have gone back straight away. But here, I got off the plane 25 minutes past nine, Friday morning, and walk into the airport, and there's a man there, give me a week's wages in my hand before I even see a bus. He gave me keys to a house. I had my own room, my own bed, and these are things that I've never had in my life before. They took me to Chiswick and give you a full set, well, there were three sets of clothes they give you at Chiswick. The only thing we didn't get at Chiswick was boots. So we were kings from the day we came here. I was born in India, uh, in the Punjab, a village boy. Early in 1958, the advice from his friends or choice of jobs was the best job for me in those days was on the buses and I became a conductor first. It was perceived as a very good job. It was perceived uh, with very good conditions, um, good sick pay, holiday pay uh, and that was for women as well as men and um, had a good pension scheme. That's what people wanted to do. Uh, have a bit of security and uh, when I first uh, started I felt very secure. I had to go to Edgware Road to the re LT's recruitment centre uh, and then I had to fill papers in to say that I wanted to be a bus driver. They then interviewed me, gave me a medical 
and then paid my fare to go to Chiswick for a driver assessment. Interestingly enough, in London, they took no notice at all of the fact that I already had experienced driving buses. Uh, there was a sort of a, oh, this is London, we don't recognise anyone else attitude. London buses used to be run by crews. A driver in a cab at the front and a conductor to collect fares from the passengers. And there are the trainees, passing stiff tests before taking a bus on the road. Training was like, goodness me, we were taught by craftsmen, real proper craftsmen that went back to the year dot. Some of the old boys that were just about retiring started on horse buses. Once I was recruited, we went on a period of training and you did about three or four days at Chiswick, which was the main centre of driving and conducting for London Transport. And after that, you went out on the road with another conductor for about a week. And that conductor would then sign you off, whether you're OK. You went back to Chiswick uh, for one or two more days. And then you were back out on the road, on your own. You had a conductor bus with 60 or 70 people and you were thrown into the thick of it. The training was good. For me, it was good fun. Um, it, most of it was classroom, but once or twice we actually went out on a bus um, with trainee bus drivers. So they had the feel of passengers as well. And we would walk around the bus giving tickets to our, our colleagues. So it just gave you the feel of the bus. Obviously, uh, the bus was moving, so you knew how to stand up and not fall down, things like that, how to ring the bus off, like, you know, learn the emergency signals. If you were trained at the driver, it took a lot longer, generally about three weeks, and later on in 1972, when I became a driver, um, you were taken out on a trainee bus, generally a bus called the RT. And the first day I was up there, um, they said, right, um, get up and drive it. And I thought, well, surely you don't want me to drive this on the very first day, but they did. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and I didn't hit nothing. <laughs> and they would take you all around London to educate you in terms of how to drive that bus and its peculiarities, and to get you used to driving in very, very busy traffic. Well, when I first started to, to learn to drive, um, I came across uh, old school driving instructors, like, you know, um, had been in the industry so long and thought women shouldn't be driving buses, like, you know, so I had that to face up to. And if I made a mistake, um, they used to shout and scream at you as if you were a child. When you first started training, they always seem to pick instructors that were like sergeant majors out of the army who so used to bark uh, their instructions at you. We also went on the skid pan or the skid patch at Chiswick and that was very interesting because it was part of London Transport Test and it was unique. And you went into the bus um, and um, you got into the cab of the bus and it was all within Chiswick uh, but it had quite a big area. And there was a big apron which they sprayed water over to make it slippery. When you got on there, first of all, you're shaking like a leaf, thinking, God, we've really got to do this. 
And there's the instructor saying, put your foot down, drive it, man, drive it as fast as you can go. And you think, it can't be so. And he would come behind the back of you, and you're driving it. He said, right, leave everything alone. He'd pull the handbrake up and whip the steering into a left-hand skid. And the bus would go and up on two wheels and then down again. And when you get out of the cab after that, a lot of people couldn't stand straight. <laughs> What they were very keen to tell us is that the big difference between driving a bus and driving a car is you have to be very careful with the brake because people are, uh, are walking about, people aren't paying attention, people are getting, standing up and sitting down. And uh, they used to say that your, 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 your first priority is the safety and comfort of your passengers. I'm driving a bus full of eggs. So what happened if I break too quick? I will break the egg. So every passenger in their eyes is an egg. And finally you've taken on your test where again you had to reverse it and you were taken out into the West End. My test, I drove from the Albert Hall through Shepherd's Bush, down through Turnham Green and finished up at Chiswick. And rolled into the garage uh, at Chiswick and you stopped. And then the instructor you know, would say, come round, talk to the examiner. He would ask you a few questions about the highway code and other instances. And then, if you were lucky, he said, you've passed. And I passed first time, so I was, I was very pleased and very relieved as well. I feel the first five times that I went to Chiswick, the first time I failed is because I was too short. The second time, they told me my arms were too short. Then they took me to the airfield for five weeks come back and they tell me it was too short again. So I just managed to pass because they want to get rid of the conductors and I didn't want to go. So they want to keep me then because I had so many years service. They couldn't get rid of me that easy. So that's how I managed to go up and pass. And if you passed the test, then you went straight to your garage. You learnt the routes where you went uh, and you, you drove in service from the next day. I would say either any more fares please or I'd say fares and passes please. And sometimes you go fares please, fares please. And and then you, you walk into this. I just used to say first please. Uh, there was a sing, singing to it, like, you know. Uh, try to be happy-go-lucky, uh, not doubt-doer or anything like that, you know. Just wanted to be friendly. There's another one that I still use, and that is, hold very tight, please. Ding, ding. Once you get a regular driver, like, you know, it's, um, you become a team and uh, you look out for each other and you have a, a, you have a bond. And very often husbands and wives would work as a bus crew together. I met my wife on the bus. She was a, sec she was a secretary and we were saving up to get married, but the money on the buses was quite good, so she actually left her secretarial job and came to work with me, so that worked out well. And there were quite strong friendship bonds there. In fact, my driver was my best man at the wedding. There's a specific bell code between the conductor and the driver. One ring is to stop, 
two rings is to go, three rings is full up, don't serve the next stop unless I ring the bell, and then multiple repeated rings, five rings or more, that means stop as soon as it is safe to do so, there's a problem inside the bus. But occasionally you used to take a shortcut and you'd be right at the front upstairs, it'd be very, very busy. And if you had a driver that you worked well with, you could, you could tap, tap above him and he would look around, make sure everything was safe to go off. Someone played a practical joke when I was on the bus. I stepped off the bus to go to the uh, toilet, which was by the bus stop. And someone had the ingenious idea of ringing the bell twice while I was in the toilet and the bus sailed off without me. <laughs> um, so I had to wait for the bus behind and then catch it up because the driver realised what had happened. It was an understanding between driver and conductor. You don't pick drunks up if you can help it. And there was a drunk at a bus stop. Now just beyond the bus stop is a set of traffic lights. So as soon as the bus stops, drunk comes out to get hold of a platform. Where a boy, by watching the near side mirror, just as he gets his leg up to reach out for the pole, the bus moves. So now he stumbles. Now you keep doing this until the lights turn green so we can leave him behind. And there he is standing in the middle of the road with his hand up as though he's going to get on the bus and his foot up. <laughs> well, in those days, there were separate fares for every single journey. So if you're on a long route, there could be a couple of hundred fares you had to know. The old Gibson machine. The conductor would carry this on their chest, and believe me, it's quite heavy, and you have to run upstairs and downstairs, and I've done full shifts with this on, and it's actually quite a heavy weight, so you can get quite tired. A lot of the young conductors thought it more fashionable to wear it just with one strap round. They, th they thought they were in uh, a magnificent seven or something, they were gunslingers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I nearly knocked a bloke out once as a conductor because she used to have the big metal machine. And I come running down the stairs and he jumped on in between stops and he was airing up the stairs. My machine hit him on the back of the head. Three, please. Three, please. Six, please. Two and two halves to the zoo. That's three, one and eight pennies, five pounds. I would say 90, 99 percent uh, the life on the bus was good. The one percent where you had the trouble and uh, the assaults, uh, that was a minority. I ended up with a broken hand and a fractured eye socket. I remember right, you gone at Westminster, so you pay me 10p, you should get off at the Elephant Castle, but you didn't. So I would go up to you and say, excuse me, how far are you going? If you say, I'm going to New Cross, I said, well, you have to pay an extra 10 pence. And if you say, I'm not paying, I just walk away and leave you. If I want to fight, I would join the army. I always remember, though, asking three very large gentlemen who were getting off at Shepherd's Bush, who had also not paid the right fare, and I can even remember, it shows how it's imprinted on your mind, they'd paid 10 pence instead of 12 and a half pence at Shepherd's Bush. So um, I went upstairs and said, excuse me, lads, um, you, you paid 10 pence, like 12 and a half. These were very bigger. And they all stood up and they towered above me. Well, conductor, we're getting off now, so that's okay by you, that's okay by us. So I said, okay. 
discretion is always the better part of valour. I was driving a bus and uh, the conductor had gone asleep on the back seat and uh, a passenger come round, he tapped on the, uh, like the engines and went to give me the fare. I said, What's, what are you doing? He said, your conductor's asleep. I said, oh, don't worry. So I carried on to the end of the route, left him asleep. And then just after we left the stand, there was a double camber. As I, as I come up to the double camber, I hit the accelerator. So the bus went up and down like that because he fell off the seat and his machine was wrapped around his neck. But I went round laughing and he just said, you could have killed me. <laughs> One night I was on a, a late night duty. It was out in the country, a place called Staines. Very, very cold. We used to have like um, jackets that were made out of blankets, but it's st still, it was that, that cold. And it was that cold that no one was travelling on the bus anyway. They were running around empty. And this particular night, I said to the driver, can I come in the cab with you? There's no, there's no passengers. So I, I jumped round, because the, the cabs for the drivers did have heaters. So I sat round, and there was a tiny box by his seat, which I sat on. And we went along the road, and we were chatting. I, I was getting warm. But then, <laughs> then a, a customer actually was waiting at a bus stop, and he put his hand out which was a bit awkward, uh, sitting in the front. But uh, we stopped the bus and we, uh, we let him get on, we looked round, made sure it was safe, and then we drove off. And he's looking round, <laughs> where's the conductor? Couldn't find him anywhere. And about three stops down the road at Sunbury, he wanted to get off, but he was a very honest man, he wanted to pay his fare. And he actually left four pence, four old pence, on the seat. And he jumped off, but to this day, I, I, I think he must think, where's what, what was going on, so we called that the ghost bus. The inspectors came uh, to the bus, certain places, certain routes, you don't know where, when, and uh, check the ticket, tickets please, uh, check if the conductor has given them all tickets. If he had missed somebody, he'll ask them, why you haven't uh, given the ticket to some uh, passenger upstairs? Because the, the conductors didn't want to go upstairs every time, they sometimes, they go upstairs every two, three stops, so there are a few more to do up there. When there are four or five, we'll go together, give them tickets to reduce their workload. I put on the conductor's machine, which is a, a Gibson machine, we put it on, and uh, he was sitting there, and passengers were getting on the bus and the route master. I said to him, what's it like to drive a bus? And he turned around and he said, what, you never drove a bus before? He said, no one's ever let you have a go. I said, no, no. Guys, you can have a case, it's quite late, this isn't nobody about. So I took his machine off and gave it to him and went round and got in the cab. And of course the passenger still sat there thinking that I was the conductor and he was the driver taking bus fares. I mean, if you was doing the early run, you pick the same people up every day. In, you know, they'd get, they'd sit in the same seat. Uh, they would have a laugh and a joke, and you know, good crack. E even to the extent that um, when we was on strike, once we actually sent a sent a couple of drivers out in their cars to pick the cleaners up, just to get them to work early in the morning, because they were, you know, such a friendly crowd sort of thing. In those days, the pensioners, the old age pensioners bus pass didn't start till half past nine, uh, but pensioners would congregate around bus stops from about 
quarter past nine. They would stop the bus and then they would go, am I too early? Uh, and they were therefore known as the twirlies because they go, am I too early? When uh, I was working on a 15s going through Oxford Street and there's an elderly lady, now can you remember that there's no floor buses them day? And she kept trying to get onto the platform. She says, can't you, can't you do something about this conductor? The conductor standing on the platform looked in the shop window and realised that the blind wasn't set correctly on the side of the bus. So therefore he reached up to wind it. The lady thought he'd load the platform for her and got on the bus. <laughs> what makes a good conductor? I, I worked with a, a lady and she was the oldest serving uh, conductors on London Transport and oh, she swore like a trooper, absolutely. But she was mo one of the most wonderful, gentle people uh, and knew how to handle the public. In all the years I worked with her, probably about three years, she never ever had a problem on the back of the bus. And yet you get some guys so argumentative with passengers, you know. So you want someone who's not argumentative, someone who, who gets on with the public. Uh, and she could drink a cup of tea. You could go in a cafe and a cup of tea would be red hot and she'd, like that, she'd be able to drink it. Yeah. Iron Nick, as I used to call her. Yeah. Children were the, were actually uh, the worst. Like, you know, uh, they would fight with one another. They would fight with the passengers. Uh, their language was, was terrible. Going back into the old days of the route master, there's some conductors just hated school children and they didn't want to pick them up at any cost. So on the 196s when we drove along up and Norwood to Crown Point, there was a long section of road of all request stops and several schools there. And if he didn't want to pick the children up, um, he'd give three rings to say full up as he left the last stop. But if he didn't want children to get off the bus because he couldn't be bothered He'd ring the bell under the staircase twice, but the second time he'd ring it, he'd hold the button in, which would then stop the, the bells from working. And he'd keep the finger on the button all the way, all the way down to the end of the road. So all the school children that ring the bell to get off couldn't get off because he'd, the driver didn't know, hear the bell go. And there were request stops, so he'd only stopped at request stops. Unless someone put their hand out, then you had to stop. So it was a bit of spite. And there's one or two conductors that just didn't like school children because they're probably rude. No disrespect to school children, but no one wanted to pick school children up when they come out. So one day I'm going down the road and we knew that at the end of the road was a big roundabout and when, the, when you turned off you went round into Rainham Village and you copped all the schools. And I've come down the road and there's three buses going round and round and round the roundabout. And I thought, well what are they playing at? So I've gone round and round about, and I've soon, I've soon found out why they was going round and round about, because they didn't want to pick the school children up, and we did. And as soon as we picked the school children up, they come off the roundabout and followed us. My conductress um, was what, known as a bonus queen, and in those days, the more tickets you sold, the more the driver and the conductor both got in bonus at the end of the week. My conductor thought he'd take a lot of people on so he'd get more bonus. So we pulled into Trafalgar Square, stopped at the bus stop, and uh, he loaded up. And uh, we had about 30 or 40 people standing downstairs, and that was an RT, 
that didn't have powered steering. So when he rang the bell and I went to turn the steering wheel, it wouldn't move. It's just frigid. I stood up and pulled with both hands, just couldn't budge it. So I got off and walked around and said, what's going on? He said, I'm after the bonus. And I, he had to kick them all off, basically. There were three buses on the N89s going around, generally about an hour apart. And in the morning, um, at about three o'clock time, we picked up a gentleman at West Ealing. Uh, he worked, or he owned a cafe near Hoban. And to make sure that the crews always picked him up and never left him behind, he used to, at the end of the week, give 50 pence, 10 shillings, to the driver and the conductor. Fred, so you always look forward to that. One day, a crew on, the, on two on the 89s were looking forward to their 50p each on the Friday morning, to the, a Friday night, sorry, to the Saturday morning. And they got to West Ealing, and they picked this man up for the other few days. He wasn't there. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And the conductor's name was Barney. Barney and his driver are now scouring the streets of West Ely. Where has this man gone? We've picked him up all week. Where is our 50 pence? In the end, to no avail, they spent about 20 minutes looking for him. So off they went, went to Liverpool Street, came back into the garage. By which time, everybody in the garage knew what had happened. And there was laughter throughout because the first N89, number one, which should have been an hour earlier, had run very, very late for a problem. And they picked up the man at West Ealing and they got the 50 pence each. In my very early days at work, I worked at 55 Broadway, the head office, St James's Park, and I used to travel on the 11. And in the end of the evening rush hour particularly, when some of the buses would finish and go back to the bus garage, and I'd jump on that one because they were renowned for getting between St James's Park and Liverpool Street as quickly, if not quicker, than the Circle Line train did um, because the crew on the bus were finishing their duty when they got back to the garage, so they had an incentive not to delay. And it was a real art form watching conductors on those finishing journeys, as they were called, looking out for the passengers, encouraging them with a cheery greeting to alight quickly and board even more quickly and the bell would ring as soon as the last foot went onto the platform of the bus and off it would go. When I was a conductor and we, as I said, I mentioned we did the 72 uh, which went to Roehampton and at Roehampton uh, there was um, an artificial limb hospital and a person came along and put his artificial limb in the small luggage rack at the back of the bus. We got to Hampstead Broadway, and I was just about to ring the bus off. I looked, in the, still an artificial leg there. And the man, what he'd done, he'd got his spare leg. And I'm, and I'm saying, I'm running after him, saying, you've left your leg behind, you've left your leg behind. <laughs> but there was a lot of um, rivalry, if you like, on the roads. Sometimes if there was a lazy driver and a lazy conductor, they'd go faster to get right behind you and then you'd pick up all the people and maybe sitting on the back, <laughs> just relaxing. The worst thing you could do as a bus driver was what was known as punching someone up, which means that you drive about half a bus stop behind the bus in front. So they do all the work and you don't pick anyone up. I went driving with the intention of working with my mum as a crew. I never did get to work with her but it was fun punching her up on the road. <laughs> She'd be hanging off the back of the bus, waving the fist at me. 
But the driver I was working with, if there was a red car in front, he wouldn't go around it. He'd sit behind and make them do all the work. The other thing we used to do was, um, if the one behind us was punching us and we'd come up to a roundabout, we'd go around the roundabout and instead of coming off at our turn and we'd go around again and come back behind him and let him do the work then. Thank you for listening to episode one of Fairs Please. The interviews were collected by children from Gateway Academy and Westminster Cathedral Primary Schools as part of a project supported by the London Transport Museum. Music by Vincent Burke. Archive audio courtesy of the London Transport Museum collection. In episode two, we explore the working life of bus drivers, inspectors and engineers as well as the buses themselves. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and Unite the Union. It was produced by Digital Works. To find out more about our oral history projects, films and podcasts, visit www.digital-works.co.uk where you can also view Fairs Please, the documentary film made as part of this project.